Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. As summer turns to fall, many things are changing, but inflation remains directionally unchanged, stubbornly high. The August US CPI numbers came in hotter than expected at 8.3%, causing further volatility in the markets the rest of the week. So, does this point to another aggressive rate hike by the Fed? And what will that mean for portfolio allocation decisions? David Tulk is today's guest to unpack this and more. David is a portfolio manager on Fidelity's global asset allocation team, who manage many funds for Canadian investors, including Fidelity Inflation-Focused Fund and the Fidelity Managed Portfolio Suite. A few key topics from today's 30-minute discussion between David and host Pamela Ritchie include a positioning update on the GAA team's funds, including global allocations, specifically China. Also, a look at energy, gold, a long-term outlook for the Canadian dollar, which includes looking at housing and interest rates. Additionally, David believes inflation is likely to be more persistent than what central banks and the market believes. Stay tuned for this and more. Today's podcast was recorded on September 14th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. We really sort of need you to break down for us what markets seem to see in that number because it was higher, it wasn't lower, but it seemed to really have a violent reaction ultimately in equity markets and bond markets. No, it certainly did. And I think it was the report that uh, suggested that any rumors of the demise of inflation had been greatly exaggerated. Uh, so certainly the uh, the core measure, which I think the market really keyed off of, uh, did accelerate. So uh, some of the elements of, of headline around energy prices, around some of the components tied to the reopening uh, theme that we've seen in the economy, those generally faded as expected. Uh, but it's the core element that showed greater persistence. And I think that's something that uh, central banks and the market were particularly attuned to because those components are themselves more persistent and they can certainly provide a greater challenge um, for central banks. And I think that's really what the market was very focused on clearly was the fact that this diminishes the likelihood of that fabled soft landing that central banks are trying to achieve. So they ultimately will need to take policy interest rates higher. Uh, in response to that CPI report, we did see a lot of expectations for central banks uh, in terms of where the tightening cycle will stop. Uh, they were pushed higher, so higher policy rates and likely remaining higher for longer as well. It's it's really interesting. I mean, is there at this point more nuance to point to or or in fact, is it, you know, the blunt instrument that is often sort of referenced? It, it will still be the blunt instrument. But in terms of the nuance, I think we're entering a really interesting part uh, of the hiking cycle. So when you're basically at ultra stimulative interest rates on the floor, 
it's really easy, I think, to take out the first 100 or 200 basis points of stimulus because, again, you're moving from something that's ridiculously stimulative to something that's still generally stimulative. It gets much more challenging where we are now as you're approaching the cloud of what is considered to be a neutral interest rate. And there's a lot of uh, empirical work that can be put into trying to understand where that neutral level uh, sits. And neutral is basically the point at which above uh, policy starts to materially slow the economy. So when central banks are getting closer and closer to that point, this is something they need to do, but they know that they can't just continue with you know aggressive rate hikes. They have to be much more nuanced in their policy response because the one thing they want to try to do is to not cause that hard landing in the wider economy. So trying to take these progressive baby steps maybe would be something that might make it make sense if inflation is cooperating. But, you know, as we saw yesterday, that's clearly not the case. And there is now a, a, a sizable or at least a, a, a non-trivial amount of a chance of a 100 basis point increase from the Fed next week, which is, would be an acceleration from the 75 basis points they delivered at the last me- the last meeting. So that that still is is the minority view, but you get the sense at least, and this is what the market is keying off of, is that policy isn't anywhere close to points at which it will stabilize or even at some point contemplate a reversal in policy. So you mentioned, so does the neutral rates sit or, or does it move actually? No, it definitely tends to move uh, through time. You can tie it generally to some of the uh, longer lived themes that exist within an economy in terms of the underlying level of potential growth, which itself can be uh, described by characteristics in the labor market and in the population more generally and as a, as a function of productivity. Um, but certainly, as we've seen with in the aftermath of the pandemic, a lot of those assumptions or a lot of the longer term trends have been disrupted. Uh, so central banks, just like the rest of us, are, are now trying to go back uh, and reestimate where neutral sits. And, you know, it's not strictly observable in, in the economy. And the additional challenge is that you're not going to really know where neutral is until maybe a year, year and a half after you've reached it, just given the inherent lags that exist in monetary policy. So it's kind of like fumbling around in a dark room trying to find the doorknob and trying not to fall out the window. Oh my goodness, it's uh, it's really truly tricky. I mean, the, the conversation of the, just going back to sort of the idea of a soft landing, which which ultimately means that the economy sort of gets disrupted as little as possible. It, is that possible to contemplate? I mean, how much does the economy get impacted? I guess is sort of the question. Yeah, no, that's a, a very good question, and it's ultimately unknowable in terms of an answer. I mean, my my general feeling is that the bridge to that soft landing scenario is very, very narrow. So, you know, basically what we're trying to achieve, as I mentioned earlier, is trying to find that right balance where you can take policy at a, at a level that is high enough to, to slow inflation without leading to a great deal of damage in the labor market or in terms of uh, the wider economy. But again, because this is all very much unknowable, central banks will need to try their best to to get there. But what the central banks want to avoid is if they leave policy too stimulative for too long, the inflationary environment will creep into expectations. And once the wider economy starts to expect higher inflation, 
that's a very difficult psychology to try to break. So that's that's the cost of leaving stimulus uh, in place for too long. And you could make the argument that we've already started to see expectations of future inflation move higher. So you know that's that's the risk that we might already start to incorporate into the base case. Uh, so as a result, you know the path that is maybe less uh, damaging, for, at least from that perspective, is to take policy into that restrictive territory to make it objectively tight, where unfortunately the collateral damage is uh, something that will take place in the labor market and in the wider economy. And uh, central banks are not, you know, not uh, evil people by nature. They're not trying to throw people out of work and really slow the economy. They just need to triage the risks that they face. And at the top of that list is, is keeping inflation expectations anchored so that if the wider economy needs to suffer a bit of damage, and we've heard central bankers uh, you know, hint at this point that some weakness in the labor market is inevitable, uh, that is something they have to endure. So that, again, increases the probability of that harder landing, uh, because I think that soft landing is just too narrow of a bridge to cross safely. It's so fascinating. Okay, so we have to take this ultimately to how you position and and actually, you know, asking a little bit about if there's an update to how you're positioning from I actually can't remember exactly when we spoke to you last, but you know, a couple of months back, what's the difference in in position? Our positioning is evolving with how we see the world. So, uh just as a quick reminder as to our process, you know, we think very much about uh the macro environment. We make a lot of decisions based on the phase of the business cycle that we're in. And all of the stuff we've talked about with respect to uh, central bank policy, inflation, economic growth, uh, does inform that that cycle view, which then really underpins the macro. But we also take a very close eye on the bottom-up channel. So all of the uh, intelligence that we gather from underlying portfolio managers and the analysts who are meeting with uh, companies around the clock and around the world. Uh, we also pay very careful attention to valuation. So we've seen you know, some valuation come back to elements of the market, but we think also in terms of relative valuation. So as much as you know, maybe the equity market looks a little bit more favorable, uh, we need to contrast that with the signal of, of valuation from the bond market and other asset classes. And then finally, we round out our view by focusing on sentiment as well. So that's been a big theme in terms of the market over the last little while is is the very dramatic move uh, from a very you know fear based market to something that uh, uh, very recently had looked a little bit better balanced. So you know that's that's the theory. That's the way we think about the world. You know, in terms of of the positioning and uh, the yeah, views that we take. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So this is exactly where the rubber hits the road. So this is the positioning that we've taken in our uh, global balanced um, managed portfolio. Uh, so you can see that we are uh, fairly neutral equities if we include uh, commodities in that equity bucket. If we take commodities out of that bucket, we actually end up with an underweight uh, position to equities. And that's largely around the view that we want to be uh, somewhat defensive. Uh, so that if it's sorry to interrupt that that's or, or you know, it's evolving in a new way. Yeah. So the, the, the steady drumbeat in terms of our approach is to recognize the maturity of the cycle. We are in that later stage of the cycle. The, the playbook for the late stage of the cycle, as we see, again, inflation continuing and uh, central banks taking policy stimulus out of the economy is to move progressively more defensive.
Um, so if you were to have seen uh, this positioning in months past, uh, you would see us a little bit more neutral, a little bit more overweight equities and the, and the direction that we've been going in more recently is to take a more uh, definitive position to be underweight the equity market. Uh, we're also generally underweight bonds with a preference for cash. Uh, and that's an interesting nuance that as you see on the right hand side of the slide, we've increased that short term allocation. And that's, you know, generally speaking, uh, a view that, you know, is, is, is driven by the fact that equities are, are not likely to perform particularly well in the later stage of the cycle as we encounter the inevitable recession. Uh, central banks are taking, again, interest rates higher. So we want to be careful with our bond allocation. So it makes sense to be somewhat prudent and to build up a little bit more in the way of cash uh, to generally protect against those other themes, but also to provide us with some dry powder to respond to the opportunities that will present themselves in the months and quarters to come. So on that, there's an interesting question that's just come in uh, right now, and that is speaking to sort of opportunities that will perhaps present themselves. Th this investor is saying, to what extent do you think a hard landing is uh, discounted in the market is priced in. Yeah, I mean, as we saw just with the reaction to yesterday's CPI report, uh, there is certainly not enough of a probability, I think, of that hard landing um, um, priced in. So, you know, I think the big key when we look at the equity market in particular is the expectations for earnings. Um, so they have come off a little bit, uh, but I think you could probably make the fair statement that if we are expecting uh, a larger uh, reduction in wider economic output, their estimates for future earnings will need to come back, uh, will, need, will need to come down even more. So uh, we are, again, generally of the view that I think that not a, not a lot of that or all of that bad news um, certainly has been priced and it is a, a moving target. And we've we've held the view for a long time that uh, inflation is likely to be you know more persistent than what central banks and what the market believes. And as a result, the uh, response from central banks is likely to be more hawkish than what the market has priced as well. Uh, until very recently, the market had actually priced in uh, interest rate cuts from the Fed next year. And I think that was uh, entirely premature. So to the extent to which you know the market needs to come to terms with the fact that central bank policy could move higher and, and, and more importantly, stay higher for longer before contemplating a reversal uh, warrants the underweight position that we've taken out of that sense of prudence and defense. The inflation protection and, and, and the fund that ultimately uh, does that, that I think was launched a year or so ago, does that, I mean, is that more pertinent today? Is it less pertinent? Is it just the same amount? Maybe you can just uh, take us through that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So in addition to the inflation protection positions that we've taken, across our lineup. Uh, you, 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 know, you mentioned the inflation focused fund, which uh, we're actually coming up to the one year anniversary in a, in a couple of weeks. And that fund is a little distinct from the rest of our lineup insofar as it's designed uh, exclusively to provide protection against inflation. And that's accomplished uh, by an allocation to uh, commodities, uh, to gold specifically, and to a range of fixed income instruments that have uh, the natural protection against inflation built into uh, their structure as well. So for an investor uh, who is worried about inflation and inflation remaining persistent, uh, this is the ideal complement to, uh, to a portfolio. So if inflation is the only thing you're worried about, uh, then it should be your entire portfolio. If you're trying to 
balance concerns around inflation with a lot of the other themes that we're speaking about today, it is a nice complement to uh, a well-diversified portfolio. And it's something that you know we still think has a role to play in, uh, in portfolios, just given the fact that we have that risk around inflation where even if you see headline inflation come down and, and strictly speaking, it did decelerate in the report yesterday, but it's the core inflation measure that is much stickier that uh, gives you that concern. So, you know, inflation can come off its peak as commodity prices have retrenched, but the road back to say 2%, I think is a lot longer than what the market believes. And that's why holding that protection against the longer term inflation dynamic is entirely appropriate. Okay, fascinating. That's that's exactly where we were uh, going on that. So so let's go into various aspects of sort of short-term rates versus long-term rates what you do in this market right now. Um, you mentioned the cash position. Do you want to just comment further on really what to do with sort of the rate story right now? Yeah, no, absolutely. No. So when we think about the allocations we have and the views, uh, clearly, again, central banks are likely to hike further. So uh, shorter duration uh, bonds are likely to see higher yields. So you know that'll benefit in terms of that cash allocation as yields start to move higher. We also continue to hold a position to leverage, leverage loans or floating rate notes. That's a, a credit allocation that we have out of benchmark, which will also uh, be very closely correlated to the higher policy rate environment. So that's where we're picking up on, on the higher interest rate environment, at least from the front end of the curve. You know, One development we've also taken, though, is to add a little bit of very long duration government bond exposure. Uh, the motivation there is that once policy becomes restrictive and once we start to see uh, economy slow and enter the inevitable recession, that's the part of the curve uh, that is likely to respond first in terms of seeing lower yields. So you could think of it across the curve, very long. So 20, 20 30 year uh, securities that we have. Again, this is a modulation in our duration to say, OK, we know that the front end of the curve is, is certainly moving higher in terms of yields. but as the market anticipates the inevitable slowing in the wider economy, you might see very, very long duration bonds start to rally. So it's a curve flattening trade that we have uh, effectively built into the investment grade portion of our bond allocation. It's fascinating. So question on, you mentioned we'd seen energy prices, perhaps they've peaked, perhaps they've come down. We've certainly, this has been one of the stories the last month or so, a couple of months. Um, but this question is about the energy crisis in Europe. I mean, may it not lead to wider contagion is the question. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good question. And I think we're seeing certainly pressure uh, within Europe. And uh, I think the the specter of uh, Nord Stream 1 being shut down and, and the energy system generally being used as, as a tool with the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, I think that does pose some pretty considerable headwinds uh, to the Euro region more generally. That's certainly one of the motivators we have for the underweight to the EFI region more broadly in the equity space is certainly concern about uh, European growth generally, and specifically what the implications might be as we enter the winter, where uh, certainly home heating costs have, have uh, increased quite dramatically. And I think that's a a very significant risk that could impact the region, especially if it ends up being a, a colder winter than, than what, what is currently expected. So definitely the risk within that region uh, is something that we take on board in terms of the underweight uh, to that portion of the equity market. 
Uh, contagion more generally, I think this is an interesting story as we maybe contemplate supply lines and supply chain disruptions more generally. But you know, ultimately, the price of energy is, is a function of both supply and demand. Uh, so as the global economy cools, definitely you'll see the demand side of energy come off. And that's certainly what uh, has happened over the last couple of months. But if we take a step back and frame the demand uh, decline in terms of supply that still is tight, and we're not seeing any investment in energy that can really be brought on stream very quickly, I think that puts a floor under how far the demand side of the energy equation can cause energy prices to fall. Uh, so longer term, you know, I think there's still certainly an opportunity in that market, and we still have uh, a commodity allocation as part of the inflation uh, theme, but also just reflecting some of the ongoing geopolitical concerns that uh, we see impacting the energy sector. We'll just pick up on the supply chain um, story that you mentioned there. Just so, it, I mean, at the margin, it's getting better, it sounds like, but then but then there's a lot of buts. <laughs> How exactly. do you see things? Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be a long road littered with many buts. So you can let that image sink in your mind, but Ultimately, what's happening here is that uh, there has been progress. So, you know, firms are certainly responding to the challenges that have been presented as a result of the pandemic. But these are, you know, inherently very slow moving uh, types of decisions. So it takes a long time to reorient or redesign a supply chain. You need to get factories online. You need to secure uh, transport routes. So this is something that you know will act again as a fundamental restraint on the supply side of the economy. But as we talk to our analysts, who I mentioned earlier, what they're telling us, and when meeting with companies, is that on the margin, you know, every day is a little better than the day before, and and that trend certainly will continue. But I just need to be you know very patient, and maybe that's a hard thing to do, just given how fast economic themes have unfolded over the last couple of years. But this is a theme that. Uh, I think will require a lot more patience to inevitably see resolved through time. Yeah, it's it's sort of fascinating. Uh, you know, what where are there areas? There's a big discussion certainly of what of what China's economy represented to the the global growth growth trajectory, um, whether that's still intact or not. Um, but I wonder if broadly you can speak to sort of your global allocation. There is a question coming in about that, and maybe kind of specifically China. Yeah, so China is bucketed in our emerging markets uh, position on the equity side of the portfolio. Uh, from the slide, you did see that we have that modest overweight. Uh, it's effectively one of the only regions of the world that we do have that overweight in place currently. And, you know, that's reflecting a number of different cross currents. I think, you know, structurally over the very long term, we like emerging markets. We like the uh outlook for productivity. We like the more favorable demographics. All of that, I think, argues for that structural allocation or even an overweight into emerging markets. Uh, then we then we uh, shorten the lens a little bit to look at some of the uh, sort of cyclical slash structural issues. And I think you know China certainly has some challenges when it comes to its property market, to its ongoing regulation issues that I think are, are always going to exist, um, which is why we want to use active managers when we approach emerging markets, because a lot of those themes will be best uh, responded to on a security by security basis. So uh, we delegate that responsibility to our underlying managers. They do a great job of stick handling around the local issues. Uh, but then when we, we tighten the horizon even further to look at 
the very cyclical outlook, if we wanted to think of, you know, one central bank out there that's actually causing or providing stimulus into their economy is in China. Hmm. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. So maybe we, we the UK, too. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true as well. Uh, that's a whole other topic I'm happy to go into. But we think, you know, specifically about China in terms of, you know, responding to the weakness that they've seen domestically within their economy. And certainly China is going to struggle with more international uh, global headwinds as well. But what we are try- always trying to find in terms of bringing optimism into our, our conversation are areas where there are improvements. And, you know, the, the, the policy landscape in China is looking marginally a little bit better. Uh, zero COVID is also gradually being relaxed in places as well, which would have been a, a major impediment to growth and a contributor to the supply chain issues we spoke of earlier. But any type of marginal improvement, uh, at least domestically within China or emerging markets, is something that we want to be attuned to. And as a result, that's why we've had that very you know, modest overweight into emerging markets to try to find that that turning point in their local cycle that we can uh, we can find a way to uh, to bring into the fund more generally. Um, you mentioned gold. This question is thoughts on gold, you know, because of uncertainty that could be inflationary uncertainty, but just uncertainty in the story of gold where that fits. Yeah, no, no gold certainly um, is being buffeted by a number of factors. Uh, gold is very correlated to uh, real interest rates, and it's a negative correlation there. So as we've seen central banks take policy uh, up, that has weighed on the price of gold. Uh, but on the other side, as as the question mentioned, it is a nice hedge against uncertainty and also against unanticipated inflation. So insofar as the market is too benign in their assessment uh, on the outlook for inflation, you know, gold might end up performing well in that environment, specifically should that theme uh, see more runway ahead of it. So that's definitely you know, one of the motivators for us uh, maintaining that position uh, specifically in gold. And I would mention, though, you know, gold itself, as, as I highlighted, it's a bit of a, a fickle bedfellow as well. So there are other factors that can interfere with its performance on shorter horizons, which going back to the inflation focused fund is why we hold a basket of different inflation sensitive assets, not to just put the entire responsibility of inflation protection on one allocation. We think it's better serve to have gold, a wider commodity basket, and again, inflation protected government debt on the bond side of the portfolio as well. That's great. Uh, I don't know if I can make this connect. Sometimes gold is seen as a currency. This question is really on the impact of currencies and, and, and this specifically is US versus CAD. No, absolutely not. It's a great question. We, we spent a lot of time talking about the relationship between the Canadian dollar and some of its fundamentals in the most recent thought leadership piece our, our team produced. Uh, but to bring you up to speed on, on where things sit, obviously the, one of the big themes globally in the market has been the strength in the US dollar. Uh, that is something that reflects not only the Fed leading the way in terms of central bank hikes, but also the flight to quality that is implicit in, in periods of market volatility that will also support uh, the US dollar. So the Canadian dollar, again, uh, ends up being caught in the crossfire here. We uh, are still cautious from a macro perspective on the longer term outlook for the Canadian dollar. That does play the balance between, again, more aggressive headwinds from Canada's domestic economy as the housing market starts to weaken in response to higher interest rates. Uh, so that's the macro underpinning for maintaining that underweight position we have to 
uh, the Canadian dollar, but quickly, it's also a way that we bring additional risk management into the fund. And this is something where, as I mentioned earlier, the outlook for risk assets is maybe not all that encouraging. Uh, bonds, generally, if you look at the entire universe, may struggle as well. So when you think of a, a 60-40 or a balanced fund, you need to figure out where you're going to get your insurance from that will protect the portfolio in these periods of market weakness. And the answer typically is foreign exchange. So being underweight the Canadian dollar, which is that pro-cyclical high beta currency, is a way we bring an additional level of protection into the fund. So yesterday was a good example where we saw you know, bonds and stocks under pressure. The Canadian dollar also fell a great deal. So that was something that provided us with a bit of protection in that specific day. That's fascinating. What a, a great conversation with you. Like perfect example of an inverted triangle. I like that currency comment at the end. Thank you so much, David Tell, for sharing your time with us. Appreciate it very much. All the best. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.